Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Okay, welcome to our Tuesday night Torah class. Um, well, it's hot here today, I thought. So, it is Arizona, but it is also the end of August. And we all know that the 1st of September, it immediately cools off, right? <laughs> I wish. I remember the first year we were here, it didn't feel like summer was anywhere close to being gone until middle of October. Um, let me open in a word of prayer. Well, Father God, thank you very much for the evening. Thank you very much for this group of people that wanted to come out and look at your Torah. And I ask that you just be with us this evening as we look at your word. Help us to just uh, have open minds and open hearts. Help us to be willing to listen to one another. And I know that you have something for each of us to walk away from tonight, walk away from this tonight with a deeper understanding of who you are and how much you love us and how you'd like us to behave. In Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, let's see. Um, there's a couple of things I like to do. Let's see, I should, one administrative thing. I'm going to be gone next Tuesday, but John, who's, will be here in a minute, um, was graciously accepted and was coerced into taking over. <clears throat> so he'll do next week, and I'll be back the following week. Uh, let's see, what else? So that was the administrative thing. I wanted to go back and talk about something um, that I failed to mention when we were talking about the uh, uh, ironic blessing. You remember the ironic blessing we looked at last week? The, the May the Lord bless you and keep you, that one. Um, and there was a movie we saw here on Friday. Many of us came and watched that movie, Patterns of Evidence. And there was something I meant to say when we were talking about that, and I forgot to. And I wanted to talk about this just for just a second. Uh, they mentioned in that movie, and I also, you can find this real easily on the Internet, there exists this little teeny silver scroll. It's a little, little piece of silver that's got uh, ancient Hebrew lettering on it, and they've determined that that lettering is the ironic blessing. And that is, they've determined, is from the first temple period. The first temple period was Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was the first temple. And the first temple period then had to be sometime prior to 586 B.C. Because 586 B.C. was when uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians nuked the temple. So if it was a first temple period artifact, it had to be that old, which makes it like 25, 2600 years old. And I wanted to point out a couple of things. First of all, there's almost nothing written that anybody has anywhere that's older than that. Now, there are a few clay tablets that were from Mesopotamia and some carvings in, in stone that were from Egypt and from Assyria, uh, but they are mostly hieroglyphics, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I guess the point is, is you can't... Let's see. Let me take a different tack at this. Um, 
as you look back into history, it's like looking through a telescope, and the farther back you look, the dustier the lens is. So when you look back 2,000, 2,500 years, there's a lot of, lot of obscurity, a lot of lack of definition, a lot of things that we, they, just don't know. And so uh, the fact that we have an artifact that agrees 100% with what we're looking at here 2,500 years later and is provably that old is unbelievable. There's nothing like that that exists in the world with any other piece of written literature at all, period. And, you know, we've got the Dead Sea Scrolls. The fact that those Dead Sea Scrolls exist, those things are provable to the first century, first or second century before Christ. And there's almost nothing that's been written that we have a copy of that's that old. And we have lots of copies of that. As a matter of fact, if you ever get a chance and you're in uh, Jerusalem and you go to the uh, Shrine of the Book, it's called, they have many, many of the Dead Sea Scroll fragments displayed. And it's, it's interesting to sit there and contemplate how old they are, not only how old they are, but how unique they are in our history. Um, there's a lot of people you run into that talk about how uh, our scriptures, ah, heck, who knows, they've been messed around with for thousands of years. They're bound to be all corrupt by now. And you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that it, they're not corrupt. There may be some minor little differences, but most of the time the differences are in translation. They're not in the actual text itself. Um, and translators do their job based on their own internal biases. The point I'm trying to get at is that it's, it's really hard to find anything in existence in our world today that even comes close to comparing to the Bible in terms of accuracy and, uh, I don't know, integrity, let me call it that. So I just wanted to point that out. And I think that's pretty amazing. And every now and then it's worthwhile to contemplate that, I think. <laughs> Anyway, enough of that. And then the other thing was, is uh, uh, we've kind of begun to say, to do this little thing, if anybody has any questions before we start with, uh, we're in Numbers chapter 8 tonight. Does somebody want to have any, any thoughts about the previous times we've talked or anything else you'd like to bring up? I'm up for it. Joe does. Wait, wait, wait. We've got to get a microphone. I'm always gratified to learn that people actually listen to us and watch us on television, and so we got to treat them right. In watching that uh, film the other night, last week, uh, about most of controversy, I was mm -hmm. telling them, Mark, you know, these scholars who are PhDs and so on and so forth, uh, this one particular man, through his study, he became a diagnostic. Mm -hmm. And you would think these guys are, uh, should be smart enough to accept what the scripture says instead of trying to prove through their intellect that uh, did Moses really do what he, uh, the scripture said that he has done. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, I told Mark, I was- No, no, down, down a little bit, you're real out, there you go. Thinking that uh, Paul says in Corinthians, the first chapter, that God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Mm -hmm. And these guys are so are full of knowledge. They're a bunch of idiots, <laughs> PhD idiots, yeah, yeah, yeah. because they're, uh, the more you look into something else through the world's eyes, the further a person gets away from God. You have to take God at his word. Yeah, there's something to that. But before 
I can condemn all of that. I have to realize that, you know, one time I was there, you know, I, I didn't buy any of this. And I thought this was, you know, that uh, religion was, the, was a, a tool for the use of uh, dictators and whatnot. I mean, I didn't, I didn't buy it. Uh, but I don't think I ever would have bought it if God hadn't met me where I was and showed it to me. But, then, you know, and it's been, what, 40 years since then. But um, I, I guess I'm not going to hold them personally responsible. Well, I will. It is their responsibility. But I guess give them some grace. There's still hope. You know, if he could work in my heart, he can work in their hearts. Any other thoughts or comments? Polly. I have a comment based on the movie that we watched as well. And it has to do with... Um, Something I realized this week, we, we represent Living Messiah in the valley uh, against human trafficking. And so we sit in public forums and just kind of figure out where our lane is and what we can do to help participate. And one of the things I realized this week was that um, a lot of the people who become a victim are illiterate. They do not read, therefore, it's very easy to take advantage of them because they cannot read. Mm -hmm. I realized in watching the film, in listening to the command, you are commanded to teach these things to your children, that these, this culture of people were not an illiterate culture of people. They could read, they could write, and they were commanded to teach their children to do the same thing so their children could read and write, which was a great benefit in the community mm -hmm. and in civilization in general. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was interesting. Even going back to the tradition of the dreidel in the Hebrew letters, what they, you mm -hmm. know, in teaching their children, I think that shows us that they did put forth an effort to teach their children to read and to write. Sure the Torah. Yeah, I think that's important too because, you know, you're talking about um, Joe, you're talking about the they, they just, they, they get so, let's see, how can I put it? They just expect you to believe them. But we have a responsibility, I think, also to question. You know, and then if we need to do this in a nice way but we, you know, what was the Bereans, the Bereans were um, commended for the fact that they searched these things out in scriptures. Obviously, you need to be able to read. But I think there's, there's two things about being misled. One is, is if you are illiterate, and let's face it, most of the population is certainly biblically illiterate, you know. So that can be cured, but you've got to recognize it and want to cure it. But the other is, this is my favorite fault, is people are just lazy. You know, they, it's easier to believe what somebody's telling them than it is to go check it out for themselves. I've always been a kind of a, a rebel and a you know, trouble causer. Um, so I don't have any trouble saying, well, you know, what, are you sure that's true? So the, but the other thing that goes along with that for me is the equal ability to say, well, I don't know yet. I, I, I'm, I can't make up my mind. I think one of the things they did motion, I think mentioned in that movie was these so-called academics that uh, didn't believe, if you will, ended up becoming agnostic. And that's probably where that leads, is because of the fact that they wouldn't accept what was right in front of them. They didn't have the uh, capacity or courage to question and to believe the results of their own research. They have to, at best, say, well, I don't know. 
But we can do better than that. We, you can know. Yes. Oh, good. I knew we'd get something. <laughs> Some of this I, I told you a little bit of. Um, when I was watching some videos, <clears throat> they uh, had mentioned that in 1927 that 58% of, I think it's uh, the 20 and 30 age group, were going to church. And today, it's 18%. Mm -hmm. And that there's, I guess everyone is recognizing, I didn't know this was going on, that there's a falling away mm -hmm. of um, kit. I don't. What do you call them? Just young adults. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, and the reason is that they are having trouble reconciling what they're being told or reading. They they don't understand why does God seem so wrathful in the Old Testament, but there's all this love in the New Testament. And, um, and there's science doesn't match the Bible. They go to college. I mean, I, I was affronted with it. I went, I remember my freshman year being um, in a philosophy class. And we started off with proving if God was real or not. And it really, it really affected me. Mm -hmm. um, so our children are not being, I mean, ours were, but mm -hmm. children are not being brought up, like Polly was saying, um, to understand the scriptures, to love them, to search them, you mm -hmm. know, to go find these answers. And uh, so, it, so their, their response to this disconnect that they're having between the words, they, they see a discrepancy and they say, well, then now I have to throw the whole Bible out. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with this because no one's giving them any answers. Mm -hmm. They're not getting them in, in the traditional church because, I mean, one of the reasons that we looked around and found this church, well, one reason is because of Valerie's daughter, but um, <laughs> Ellie. But the other reason is, is uh, my husband had just become, uh, it was almost egregious to him to go to these rock concerts when we would go to church and there was fog and there was lights and mm -hmm. it just, and then you get this topical message and it was like, we're not growing, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So um, I think that what's cool for us about being part of this is we're getting some answers mm -hmm. that we didn't have before that mm -hmm. were never taught to us. Yeah. There's some clarity that is um, coming to us that we're very thankful for and we feel like, like it's just, it's very inspiring because I feel like, um, what did I say, what did we say? That, okay. That, um, I can't do what he. I can't do what you just asked him to do either. Okay. <laughs> um, it's just like I. I feel okay. This is what I said. I said I feel like I was, like, the vision. 
the the veil is is being taken yes. away yes. and that I can see things clearer mm -hmm. that were actually right in front of me all the time. Uh-huh. Yep. It's crazy. Yep. And f I mean I'm the type of person I read through the entire Bible. Yep. I read these things. I didn't see them. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm like, how did I not see well, them? I tell you what, I, I got some comments on what you're saying. Yeah, okay. First of all, we've all been there. Well, and, that, I mean, that's it, cool. it's, it's really to me, and looking back on it, it's it's God that's doing it. I know. It's not it's not you and me and how smart we are. Right. It's God that's doing it. And that's highly appropriate. Because, you know, he says that um, if you believe I exist and you diligently seek me, you can find me. Yeah. But the problem is, is the, like you say, the rock concerts and all that kind of stuff, they're not diligently seeking him. They're, they're out there trying to acquire membership, you know, or yeah, what, what have a do good we time, need to do? what an experience, you know, but it's, it's not trying to find him. No. He is in here. I mean, he's in his word without a doubt. Yeah. And he's not easy. I mean, if it were easy... You know, everybody do it, I guess. Maybe that's a silly thing to say. But you've got to want to. God doesn't mm -hmm. want you to. It's not a casual thing with him. His, his desire for you is to be 100% committed. Now, and what you get for that is you get the feelings, if you will, associated with, ah, I'm on the right path. This, I mean, I don't know everything. I don't know if we'll ever know everything. But at least we're going in the right direction. Yeah. And I feel a lot more secure in that than I do anything that I can get from the world outside, if you will. Right. You know, it's um, God's doing it, and when it, and I think as far as the you know the dwindling population of the traditional church is concerned, is as we approach these end times, He's making people decide. You know, you have to decide. Each person needs to make their own decision, but they've got to decide: Am I going to continue to you know do this uh, Kiwanis Club type church? Right. Or, uh, you know, am I going to get serious about this thing and really look into God's Word and see what it is He says? Yeah. Uh, and it's great. There's a, we have a, a friend that's been a pioneer in this for a long time. Batya Wooten is her name. And she said one time, she says, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. I mean, it's there. And yeah. I, I tell people, I've been walking this way for over 20 years. And if it was a fad or if it was something bad, it would have shown up by now. And it's only gotten better. You know, there's no yeah. doubt that what we're doing is right. You know, <laughs> we just got to, and we can feel good about it. It's okay. But it's it's God that deserves the credit. Yeah. yeah I yeah. feel even a little closer to him. Yep. Well, you, you know? should. Yeah. You should. Because as you think about these things and as we move along down this path, boy, stuff starts making sense. Yeah. It really does. Things really start... I mean, God has this 6,000-year plan, and we're over here toward the end, and you can see it all. You can see every bit of it. You know, it's all happened. It's all verifiable, uh, and he's, you know, he's, he's got this all I, I think that the reason uh, those, I mentioned those statistics is because, um, you know, I mean, I hate to see anyone not truly saved. I, you know, mm -hmm. I want everyone to be saved and, and to, to, un, to know the joy that yep. goes along with it. And, and I really wonder if, if they were able to sort of learn this stuff instead of what they're yep. learning in the traditional church, if it would be different. But. Well, it, it, it will be. But again, 
Number one, God's got it all under control. And number two, I think one of the things I've gone through, I don't know if you're, if you did or will, but I was angry at the church and at people for misleading me all this time. You know, well, um, I learned you can't do that. You know, that's for lots of reasons you can't do that. Number one, most of them aren't doing it with malice aforethought. They're just doing what they think is right. Um, and, and the thing is, is we don't want to cut them off and, and dissociate. I mean, there's a bunch of people out there that still need to be found and, and brought to this. Some of them will come, some of them won't. But that's not our problem. Our problem is just to treat people with love and respect and, uh, you know, wish the best for them. And then tell them what we don't. <laughs> Margaret. Um, I think we have to remember that there's, there's the broad road and then there's a narrow way. Yep. And the remnant is just that, a remnant, a little piece, a little piece that's supposed to understand. Um, but I think that the people are out there, um, you know, it's kind of like when you're a kid, you're delusional. Mm -hmm. And you like it. <laughs> you like it, you know. Yes. There's a lot of, you like it. There's a lot of good feelings that go with it. Yeah. Um, fun. Fun. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, the sad thing is that a lot, some people that do start in the Hebrew roots, and they've come from Christianity, they get so much into the knowledge mm -hmm. that after a while they abandon Messiah. Yes, they do that. That's, that came, that's a common that, thing. That, that came in the flesh, and they go to Judaism, which is, Mostly in many respects, has left a lot of yep. the teaching, the correct teaching, to yeah. where they've made up their own rules. and. Uh, Another so, I was just going to say, another yeah. thing that they do along those lines is they bring with them all this uh, focus on minutiae. Yeah. You know, well, you don't agree with me about this little thing over here, so I don't know if we can have fellowship or not, right? I mean, God, he's pretty tolerant. Yeah. You know, and, and if you're wrong, he'll fix you when it's important. You know, it'll all get yeah. straightened out. So to cut people off because they don't see things exactly the way you do. I mean, there are certain things that aren't negotiable, well, yeah. but there aren't tons of them. I, I find that there are things. The Sabbath is one. If, if yep. you know, That's not negotiable. If you're not keeping Sabbath, yep. uh, well, to me, the name is another one. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's things that you have to, wherever you're at, there's some people that are, are not there yet. Yes. And maybe they will be at some time, and maybe they won't. I, who knows? Yep. Uh, but you have to determine for yourself, and there's times when you're just going to have to make a decision and say where you're going to go, and, yep. Yep. you know, that's it. That's good. Okay. We'll quit in a minute and get to Torah. Uh, I just wanted to comment on this, the comment that was made about how the educational system and the scholars are turning people away from the scriptures, away from Yahweh. And I've got several papers I've been reading by some Christian scholars and also some by some uh, Jewish scholars, and they all kind of say the same thing, that this effort to discredit the Bible over the last 2,000 years by all these developments, through, a lot of it through the scholars that were anti-Bible, has been consolidated over the last 500 years into the churches. Mm -hmm. So now you have a situation where in the churches, most of the Bible has become a fictional, mythological 
storybook, mm -hmm. not real. Mm -hmm. So uh, one scholar said that, you know, it's now where what's in the world is normal and comfortable. It's almost like the movie The Matrix, where we're taught that the world is normal and comfortable, and, we're, and it's like you like to be in your comfort zone. And the stuff in the Bible is weird and bizarre and scary and fictional. <laughs> so why go there? Yeah. It's too uncomfortable, and besides, it's not real anyway. <laughs> yeah. So then you wonder why the churches have to have rock concerts. Yes. Because the, the young people and the people are sitting there like, why? I mean, there's nothing here for me to do. Yeah. I mean, it's a comic book. Uh, you know, so I don't need to get involved. And even in the churches that teach some of the stuff, they're still keeping what I call this, this phenomenon, keeping the believers glued to the seat, you know, because they're, they're taught that there's nothing to do. Yeah, yeah, you sit there and listen to me. Yeah, just yeah. sit and listen, mm -hmm. and there's no, nothing for you to go out and do. There's no, there's no real opposition. There's no real enemy. There's no real anything, you know. Uh, so you wonder why people don't want to volunteer, why people don't want to get involved, why people just want to come and get entertained. Well, you know, they could just as easily sit at home and play their video game mm -hmm. because that's the, in their minds, that's the equivalency. Yeah, I hear you. So that's why it's good that these kind of communities are trying to get back to the reality in the Bible and we're fighting against hundreds and hundreds of years mm -hmm. of layers of non-reality mm -hmm. of this propaganda that's been, that we were born into. Yep. And so that's the battle. Yeah. That's like Margaret says, it really is a remnant. Yep. But congratulations, you all are here. <laughs> okay, do you want to move on to the Torah? We're in chapter 8, Numbers chapter 8. Last week before we quit, we had read the, uh, gone through this long chapter got 89 verses in it uh, that repeats itself and tells what each of the 12 tribes contributed to the, uh, to the Levites in order for them to be able to do their job. Interesting, but um, I have yet to determine exactly why it's all there. Maybe, you know, I, have, I used to have this list of things I want to ask him when I get there. That's one of them. So let's start with chapter 8. Would somebody like to read chapter 8? See, we'll start off easy. Just do the first, what, four verses? We'll just do four verses of chapter 8 and just, there's not much here, just to talk about it. So if somebody doesn't want to read much, that's your, your opportunity, Mike. And Yahweh spoke to Moshe saying, Speak to Aaron, say to him, When you ascend to trim the lamps, let the seven lamps give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up the lamps who faced toward the front of the lampstand as Yahweh commanded Moshe. And this is the work of the lampstand, beaten work of gold from its base to its blossoms. It is beaten work according to the pattern which Yahweh had shown Moshe, so he made the lampstand. Okay, like I say, this, not sure exactly why that's there, but let's talk about it for a minute. Um, so how were those lamps supposed to be positioned in the tabernacle? Doesn't it say? Yeah. It says they were positioned so that they uh, lit up the area in front of the... Uh, let's see, I don't have the... Yeah, I do. Let me go back here. 
I think I do. No, I don't have what's in the tent of meeting. But for those of you that don't remember that, um, if, you, if you were at the, standing right in front of the tabernacle itself and you walked through the curtain and you looked, what would you, what would you see right in, dead, dead ahead of you? You'd see a curtain, a big curtain. What's right in front of that curtain? Nope, it's the altar of incense. Right in front of that curtain is the altar of incense. It's a little thing. It's a cubit by a cubit about this tall. It's gold, and that's what they burn incense on. Yeah, kind of like this. And then off to the right, I'm standing there looking in there. Off to the right, what's, what's to the right? The table of showbread. Table of showbread. And off to the left, I'm sorry, it was my right and my left. Uh, <laughs> not yours. The off to the left, as you're standing there looking, is the menorah. And then um, behind that curtain is what? The Ark of the Covenant, right? Okay. So the lamp stands over here on the left, and it said it was to shine its light out into the, to the main area there. Now, you have to understand these lamps were, they were oil-fired lamps, but they had reflectors behind them. And so the main object here was to point out that these reflectors were positioned so that the light went out in the direction of the middle of the room. Yep. I was just thinking in the Medora up there, yep. seven, seven lights. Yep. I was wondering if there's any, conne uh, any connection to what uh, numbers one through four is talking about in conjunction with the menorah. Numbers one through four is talking about. Yeah, talking about the, talking about the seven lamps. The number seven. You got yes. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh huh. The, there's quite a bit of significance in that number seven. And each one of those lamps, I've seen lots of different studies about they, they mean different things. I don't have them all off the top of my head. But there's been, there's places we can find in Scripture that talk about, oh, I don't know, there's the seven spirits of God and various different things. The one that uh, seems to be different is the one in the middle, for whatever reason. I didn't go there, but that's a perfectly good thing to go look at. Does anybody have anything? Yeah. So mine's a, mine's a theory, if anything, but when it comes to number four, mm -hmm. um, well, I saw a video by 119 Ministries, at least mm -hmm. I think it was them, mm -hmm. where they were talking about each um, day is like a thousand years to mm -hmm. God. Yep. And they talk about how, you know, each thousand years of the Bible is, for example, like the first day mm -hmm. of creation, the separation of light, light mm -hmm. and darkness, the first thousand years, you know, the first book in the Bible, Genesis, and the first story in the Bible talks about Adam and Eve and, mm -hmm. you know, the separation between good and evil mm -hmm. from eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, the 4,000th year, you know, approximately, that we would go, like, if we were to trace, yep. you know, each story in the Bible and, and use the timeline, yep. we'd find that the 4,000th year is the year of Jesus or yep. Yeshua, yep. the Messiah. And, and there's so many other things, too, that I, I keep thinking of, too. And I think of the two olive trees that you know, pour into, and then there's the two houses of Israel, yep. you know, that pour into it in the left side and the right yep. side. And the Messiah sits in the middle and he ties it all together. Yep. And the 4,000th, you know, year yep. would also go into that too. Yeah, that's, 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 that's very good. And there's a lot of things you can find. If, if your analogy is correct, I've often thought about this thousand years as a day kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, so this one over here would be the... Uh, millennial reign. Millennial reign, mm -hmm. right? And this is where we are, Yep. right? We're kind of right in here. Right? 
And then this was, uh, this is the year 1000, this is the year zero, if you will. So like you say, this mm -hmm. is Messiah. So yeah, you can do that. Yeah. There's a lot of other things you could do too. So there's a lot of significance with mm -hmm. the number and seven. That's, and that's just a theory. Like, yeah, I well, no, fact. there's nothing wrong with that. I think those are all there for a reason, you know. Those also relate to the feasts. Yes, yes. Here's, like he was uh, saying the last one is the millennial reign. Yep. Which represents that's the Sukkot. Sukkot. This is Day of Atonement. This is Feast of Trumpets. So that's Shavuot. That, that works. Yeah. We got to... <laughs> no, you can't have your own mic. <laughs> I just thought this was interesting. I did a search on um, the seven lampstands, and there's, a, there's the seven churches in Asia which mm -hmm. he had to send in Revelations, send and uh, speak to the seven churches. There's, um, hold on. It says there, the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit yep, in yep, Isaiah. Yep. There's, um, there's a lot of things like that. There's, there's just so many. Yeah, there's some. I have a it's book amazing. at home. I'll bring this little book next week if I can remember, week after next. It's, uh, oh, I don't know, it's called Mathematic, Biblical Mathematics or something like that. And it's got each of those numbers. Seven is known as the number of perfection. So, anyway, enough of that. I had one little piece of symbolism I had found on those. The, to me, the idea of having the lamps shine their light out toward the middle of the room. What's across the room from the menorah? The table of showbread. The showbread represents his word, right? The, the word is bread of life. So we got the, the I'm the light of the world and the bread of life kind of beating together. It all, it all kind of works. Enough said. We don't want to beat that particular passage to death. There's much more fun ones coming up. So would somebody want to read, like to read from verse... Five to the end of chapter 8. From verse 5 to the end of chapter 8. Now that's only 21 verses altogether. So I've like got to do a sales job on this. Margaret will read it. Yay! Thank you, Margaret. I might, I might give out in between there. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I always spoke to Moshe saying, take the Levites from among the children of Israel. Is it off? And Yahweh spoke to Moshe saying, take the Levites from among the children of Israel and you should cleanse them and do this to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of sin offering on them and they shall shave all their body and shall wash their garments and cleanse themselves. And shall take a young bull with its grain offering of fine mixed flour mixed with oil while you take another young bull as a sin offering and you shall bring the Levites before the tent of the meeting and you shall assemble all the congregation of the children of Israel and you shall bring the Levites before Yahweh and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites and Aaron shall wave the Levites before Yahweh a wave offering from the children of Israel so shall they be for doing the service of Yahweh and the Levites shall lay their hands on the hands of the young bull, and one shall be prepared as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to Yahweh to make atonement for the Levites. And you shall have the Levites stand before Aaron 
and his sons, and then wave them, a wave offering to Yahweh. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. Then after that, the Levites shall go to, in to do the service of the tent of the meeting, when you have cleansed them and waved them as a wave offering. For they are given, one, for they are given ones given to me from among the children of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the children of Israel. For all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast. On the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Mitzrayim, I set them apart unto myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the, the firstborn of the children of Israel, and I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel to do the service of the children of Israel in the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the children of Israel, that there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come near the set-apart place. Thus Moshe and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel did to the Levites according to all that Yahweh commanded Moshe concerning the Levites, so did the children of Israel did to them. And the Levites cleansed themselves and washed their garments, and Aaron waved them, a wave offering before Yahweh, and Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. Then after that, the Levites went in to do their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as Yahweh commanded Moshe concerning the Levites, so they did to them. And Yahweh spoke to Moshe, saying, This applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and above, let him come into active service in the, in the, in service, in the service of the tent of meeting, and at the age of 50 years, they retire from active service of the service and serve no more. But they shall attend with their brothers in the tent of meeting to guard the duty, but shall do no service. Thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their duties. Okay, thank you. So this section in my Bible is, uh, is entitled, The Setting Apart of the Levites. And so um, why was it necessary to purify the Levites? Yeah, they were, they were the ones that were, the job of the Levites is to be the intermediaries between the people, the Israelites, the rest of the Israelites, and God. So they're the ones that come in, in close contact with God, so they need to be purified. So how was it done? Beg your pardon? Well, there was a sin offering and two offerings, I think a sin offering and a burnt offering. Um, but they were cleansed, you know, ceremonially, and, and they were, their head was shaved, their hair was shaved off their bodies. Um, who did that? Who did all this? Aaron and his sons. It's a good point. The reason I wanted to point this out is it's a lot of times you, at least in my head, I used to kind of confuse the Levites with the priests. The priests and the Levites are not the same. Every priest was a Levite, but every Levite sure wasn't a priest, okay? The priests were only those direct descendants of Aaron. The Levites were everybody else, okay? And we noticed that, you remember, there were three clans in, in Levi, if you will. There's the Gershonites, the Merarites, and then the Kohathites. The priests were Kohathites, uh, but even all the Kohathites weren't priests. And you remember the Merarites and the Gershonites had, each had 
a separate area of the tabernacle that they were uh, responsible for. One of them, I think it was the Gershonites, were responsible for the, the cloth stuff. I call it the Manchester, you know, the, the tent coverings and the curtains and all that. And the uh, Merarites then were responsible for carrying the tent poles and the planks and the, all this other kind of stuff. So, but those all, all of those people made the uh, tabernacle work. And so they had to be uh, clean before God. So it was the priest's job to purify and set apart the rest of the tribe of Levi uh, for their work. And um, now remember, we did a similar kind of thing for... Uh, Aaron and his sons. Now, who did that? Moses. Yeah, Moses did, did the ceremony, and that was that thing I pointed out that has been written about, has been described at least three times in the past three chapters. There's this one in, in Numbers, there was one in Le Leviticus, and then there's one at the end of Exodus. But Moses ordained, if you will, Aaron and his sons, and this was Aaron and his sons. This was the priesthood um, sanctifying or ordaining, in some sense, the, the rest of the Levites. Um, so I wanted also to point out that the... Uh, does it, is it clear why the Levites... God explains here, we've seen this before. Why did God... What did... By God taking the Levites, he calls them, the Levites are mine. I take the Levites. He took the Levites... Uh, as a replacement for whom? All the firstborn, right? The, every firstborn of Israel, I'll get you in a second, every firstborn of, of the Israelites was God's by definition. And what God did was, is He said, I'll let, I'll substitute all the firstborn of all the other tribes and I'll just take all of the Levites as mine. And He did that, He said, in fairness for what happened at Passover. Because at Passover, he took the firstborn of everyone that didn't have the blood on the doorposts. John. So he says, they're mine. This sounds like Jacob when he said that about Joseph's two sons, yep. Ephraim and Manasseh. Yep. That's we just talked point. about it last Shabbat or the week before that. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's sort of adopted them yes. as his. He says, he says, the Levites have a job, have a relationship with me that's different than all the other tribes. Yeah. Does anybody else have a thought there? Okay, what did he say? Why did he? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I don't understand what he means when he calls them mine. I mean, um, Israel was his. And, and I want to understand why he's making this determination or setting them apart separately. And what does it mean when he says that? Um, and, and then in verse 17, he says, for all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, those are his, and now the Levites are his, but... If you were a firstborn kid or if you were a Levite, what did that mean that mm -hmm. you okay. were mine? Well, um, I'll, I'll give you my opinion, and I think I'm kind of right on this. What he basically says was it's kind of like the tithe, if you will. Um, the firstborn, the first fruit, belongs to God. 
I mean, you, that you can make a, a case for that all over the place. The first fruit of your vineyard, the first fruits of your livestock, the first one always belongs to God. It's just your tenth. It's what you owe Him. And so it then goes with the Levi, or it goes with the Israelites too. And I, we can get into a big argument about whether it's only males or not, but let's not go there. The firstborn male of every single Israelite belongs to God. Now, belongs is the question, right? Belongs, well, what it, what it technically means is they're mine, they are to serve me all their life, and I'm, you know, their, their life belongs to me. As a matter of fact, he took the firstborn of all the Egyptians that night of the first Passover, so those were his. He took them. So they belonged to him. Now, the other part of the question that you asked, though, was so he also took the Levites. What's going on here? And we did an accounting here a couple of weeks back where we matched these numbers up. What he said was, this is God, he said, I don't, I, rather than take the firstborn of every single tribe, I'm going to exchange the firstborn of every single tribe for the entire tribe of Levi. That way, this firstborn of all the other tribes can go on about their business, if you will. He redeemed them. That's this whole concept of redemption. The Levites served as the redemption for the firstborn of all the rest of the Israelites. So now, the Levites are him, his. Why did they have to be redeemed? Because the firstborn are his, by definition. It's the tithe. It's the fact that the firstborn belonged to God. He's, it's just... I'm sorry, give her the mic and let me understand the question better. You'll get your turn. <laughs> when you redeem something, you're giving something in exchange That's and you right. get something back. Yes. Okay, what did the firstborn get back? They, they got back the obligation of spending their entire life in service to God in his tabernacle. Oh, in the tabernacle. Okay, why... Would he have to do that? Because he says, um, uh, it's, he, you mentioned it, um, he had to do some making a, he, he talks about the firstborn in Egypt when he yes, did that. Yes. So he's doing this because he did that? Yes. Why? Well. Why would he need let me, to? This is my opinion, but I'll tell okay. you why, why I believe this is true. So uh, during you know, leading up to the Passover, I don't know whether God always had this rule. I think he always had the rule. He says, the firstborn belong to me, period. Okay. Now, on the night of the Passover, he says, I'm taking the firstborn. I'm taking the firstborn of the Israelites and the firstborn of the Egyptians. Now, if the Israelites will put the blood on the doorpost, I'll pass over them. But if they don't, and the Egyptians didn't, I'm taking their firstborn. And he did. Okay. Now, so... This is me thinking. In his mind, God's mind, if you will, those firstborn all belong to him. Now, the firstborn of the Israelites, because they were obedient, get to go on and live their life, but they're his. Okay? Now what God's saying is, I need a whole group of people to minister to me in the tabernacle, and I really don't want to take the firstborn of all of the Israelites, so I'm going to trade them for all of the Levites. And so I'm going to redeem each of those firstborn uh, tribes other than Levi and take in their place all the Levites. Why he did that, I don't know. But certainly the math works out right. And that's what I think is going on there. So you could, you could differ. 
Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do also with uh, uh, God's justice. He has a way of doing things that we probably don't understand. And uh, he has, he just doesn't do things, you know, well, you know, I don't want these firstborn, I'll take the Levites instead. So, and uh, probably John knows more about this stuff than, than me, but I, I just have this sense that he has a, because of his just nature, yes. he, he does things in a certain way. And uh, There yeah. is something about his justice that yeah. this talks to, and I'm not exactly sure either. Yeah. But, but he goes to a lot of trouble to explain it. And furthermore, this is not the first time he's done that. You know, all that mathematics stuff that we went through, counting and, you know, and all that stuff, that's, that's all about this. So it was an important, uh, important aspect somehow. Okay, in uh, verse 6, Scripture says, Take the Levites from the children of Israel and cleanse them. Then in verse uh, 11, it says, And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord, offering the children of Israel that they may execute the service of the congregation. Mm-hmm. It's like, sure, all of Israel is God's, but he picks these Levites to represent him to do what they were needing to do. Mm-hmm. It's yes. like if in modern day time, if you were uh, a CEO of some company and you're picking these certain individuals to mm-hmm. do what you want, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what, well, Okay. He also uh, takes the firstborn of the animals, too. Yes, he, he does. he says that these are mine. Yes. And he expects those to be sacrificed, the yeah. clean ones anyway. Yep. John has something. Do it. So it, it isn't like the rest of Israel is just, they get the mess up, do whatever they want. No, they're a nation of priests and kings. Yes. They're a representative of the rest of the nations. Yes. So... It's, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's a hierarchy. It's kind of like, where are you at in this hierarchy? Yes. And when you find that, do your job. Do yeah. a good job. Here, here. That's right. So, uh, that's all. No, no, good. that's fine. And, and going along with that, so the Levites represented the nation of Israel to God. They were the intermediary between God and the rest of Israel. Israel was God's, is God's model to the rest of the world. Israel was supposed to be God's uh, demonstration of why God's the God of the universe, God's the royal God, and why you should, why you should look at these people. You know, this, this is what you should use for your model. Be careful, don't forget that everything on the earth is God's. Yes, exactly. And the, he chose Israel to be his people that he was going to work with Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that everybody else is not his too. Well, that's true. Yeah, like I say, the, the job of Israel is to represent God to the rest of the people of the world. Yep, that's exactly right. A couple of things that I hadn't really noticed, but here the children of Israel, uh, in verse 10, children of Israel shall uh, put their hands upon the Levites. So it's like 
their offering. Yeah. And then the other one here. That's, on, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. And so I wonder how they did it. Maybe each. Well, there was, there was 23,000 Levites and there was umpteen so million. So ten, 10 Israelites or more <laughs> to one Levite put in their hand on Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Um, on 11.2, um, the, the Hebrew word for, uh, for offering is wave, noof, noof. And it means to move to and fro. So I wonder if they shook them as they were. <laughs> well, I was confused. I no, no, no. That's a very yeah. good question because yeah. a wave offering was, that was what you were supposed yeah. to do. Yeah. Uh, you were uh, with uh, the, I don't know, the bread, left the hind quarter or whatever it was. You were supposed yeah. to wave it before the Lord yeah. as you offered it to him. Now, you can't do that with the Levite. So I don't really understand exactly what that meant other than that it was, it was that type of offering. Maybe it was it something. Was, they moved them around from, from each one of the ten that was. That could be. I'm Who not knows? sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm just, just wondering why um, there's a lot, of, a lot of the Jewish people, when they're at the wall, they move back and forth. That's called davening. When, yeah. I, when I went to Israel, it was so weird because I, I didn't know a lot of stuff. <laughs> but I looked to the back, and there's all these Jewish guys with their, you know, the Orthodox, mm -hmm. with their mm -hmm. locks and everything yep. and the hats. And they were in the back, they were way, they were going, yeah. rocking back and forth. And I wonder if that's why they... I don't know. That, that's yeah. a thought. Yeah. That could be. That, like it's I say, the term waving, for that it's is... It's a movement. It involves movement, it yes. sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Could be. Could be. John's got something. So the priest, don't they put their hands on, the, like the Yom Kippur, the... the, the the Azazel, the scapegoat and all that, and also yes. on, the, on the Passover lamb? Yes. So they're doing that kind of like in reverse. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Polly had something. Maybe Mark can look up more what the word is for laying their hands on, but something else I've seen uh, take place is that uh, maybe it would be five men on one side or people on one side five on another, and they cradled an individual as he laid oh. back in their arms, and it could have been that they waved him. I've, I've seen this happen. They each one cradled one of the yeah. uh, Levites, and they presented him as a wave offering it certainly could uh, have been before that. the Lord. So it yep. could have looked like that. Yep. yep. It's, this only happened once, right? So... Because the Levites only needed to get set aside once. So, interesting. Let's see if I had anything else. Oh, the interesting thing was, so when did uh, a young male Levite start his work? Age 25, right? So how does that contrast to Levi, uh, Numbers 4, 3? What does Numbers 4.3 say? 30 years old and upward, even until 40 Although years. That was serving in the army. Oh, was it? Yeah. For the Levites? No. The Numbers, I thought that was, was the Levites they were talking about? Right. In Numbers 4? Numbers 4.3, let's read it real quick. It's for the Levites. 
That take, could be. Take it the sum be. of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi, Levi after their families by the, the house of their fathers from 30 years old and upward even until 50. Okay, I'll tell you another thought I've had and I've heard this before. Yeah, but these are Levi too. The, uh, what I've heard before is that the first five years were a uh, apprenticeship. apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah, that's what I had in my notes. Yeah, I heard that too. I, that could be. It could be. So, uh, I had a question about, you kind of skipped past, uh, um, I had a question about verse 16. Well, did you you went past that, right? Was doesn't the the Levites their the, age? They are later? they are it's, they are at? the Israelites who are to be given holy to me. I have taken them uh, as my own in place of the firstborn of the first male offspring from every Israelite woman. Is that what you mean? Uh, yeah. For they, let me read it in King James. For they are wholly given unto me from among the children of Israel, instead of such as open every womb womb, even instead of, that's all in italics, the firstborn of all the children of Israel, have I taken them unto me? Yes. Well, my question, and uh, maybe I'm just... Well, we did talk about that, but go ahead. What's your question? This is this trading thing that I've no, been talking about. No, I get about. that. But does that mean that the Israelites no longer do the, the firstborn, like if they have a calf, is that still, you have, of, of an Ephraimite, is that still considered God's? Or does this no, yeah, verse... I, th I think it is still okay. considered God's. I guess, but it's my understanding that had God not chosen to do this, then the people that would have been taking care of the tabernacle would have been composed of a member from all 12 tribes, members from all 12 tribes. By doing it this way, he gets just the tribe of Levi to be wholly responsible for it. That's, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I don't disagree with that. I'm talking about like the, 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 uh, the livestock. Yeah. Does that also get all that rules get transferred over to the, to the Levites? They, I don't want to say how it could because they're not really doing livestock yeah, anymore. Right. That's the rest of the tribe. So. I, 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 think it's, I think it's just people. Okay. But you bring up a good question in that your, your version talked about that the first that opens the womb, right. which would not necessarily be male. Right. So I still struggle with that one. I go back and forth on that whole thing because it occurs to me that it's pretty restrictive to have it just be the male, but I don't know. So I like your comment about it possibly being an apprenticeship, mm -hmm. meaning they, they get selected, but they don't perform any of the real tasks mm -hmm. doing it. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me of the trees. Mm-hmm. How long before we can partake of the fruit? Yep. Yeah. Essentially five years. Yep. Yep. That's right. That's right. Well, the other thing was, is you notice the retirement age is 50, but it says you don't quit at 50. It's just you're not responsible at 50. So at, at age 50, I could see that that would be when you'd start working with the apprentices. Right. You know, you're... so um, <laughs> it's a little overlap on each end there. And the thing that's interesting about that is on the one hand, I wouldn't expect the work of the tabernacle to be all that, you know, hard, all that difficult, all that intricate. But boy, God, he, he wants this thing done right, you know. And like I say, your job is assigned, and somewhere we read where, you know, when your job as a Levite is assigned, 
That's your job for the whole 20 years or 30 years, whatever it is. You know, you don't, uh, you don't get to do job swapping and you don't get to promote it, get promoted. That's your job. <laughs> Maybe it's not difficult, but there's an awful lot of it going on. Oh, there is. I mean, when you consider the animals that they run through. There's a lot of animals. Plus, like I say, there's 20,000 of them. They're just keeping all this stuff in, in order. <laughs> it's got to be kind of hard. Joe's got something. Oh, a lot of comments. Oh. Who was first? I don't know. This verse that John was reading from uh, chapter 4, verse 3, from 30 years old and upward until 50. Okay, you got a 20-year span. Mm -hmm. All right? So uh, the preparation until they reach the age of 30 it's their training period, or like Mark said, their from, apprenticeship. From, from 25 and, to 30. Yeah. And then after 50 years old, then you're too old to do all these things. Mm -hmm. So you go back so, and you train the apprentice. Yeah, so you got a 20-year span, and the preparation, the yeah. uh, being in, uh, mm -hmm. ready to do this now, yeah. up to a certain age to where after 50 year old, they couldn't go to 51, 52, or 55. Yeah, yeah. They had to stop at 50. Yep, that's right. Weren't the Levites supposed to um, do the offerings, all the animals and mm -hmm. everything, deal with the animals? Well, so I think, I th I'm not sure about this, but I think the uh -huh. priests actually did the, uh, the slaying, if you will, but I don't know. It might have the been Levites, the Levites. The Levites did the preparing hauling around the oh yeah the they blood kept, oh yeah yeah the, yeah, yeah. the skinning did, and all that they so did was, all this the grunt work when i first started studying um <laughs> and i went to the i went to the meat market <laughs> and so <laughs> you know the the butchers used to wear the white with a hat on and it was like oh those, those are the levites because that's that's you know they're moving around all these carcasses and yeah. beef and everything and yeah. uh that's what i picture and it, and I would think it would take quite a bit of strength to be moving some of those, especially if you have Good a point. if you a have a bull, or a, big a ram, bull. a ram or a bull. Yeah, you're right. You know that weighs a lot. A I don't know if they point. had wheelbarrows or what. They had some kind of. Uh, That's a good question. Uh, but anyway, um, I thought uh, men would have to be in their prime to yeah. move and haul stuff around uh, all yep. those basins of blood and, yep. and all that stuff. Oh yeah. It's going to be interesting to see that, isn't it? I was just sitting here wondering when the temple was destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, what it, is there any writing? Is there any <clears throat> historical writings of what the Jews did after the temple? Because mm -hmm. all these Levites now have nothing to do. Mm -hmm. And where did they go? And what did all the people do who used to bring mm -hmm. things to the temple? Well, there's, yeah, there's two or three things I, I can kind of talk a little bit about there. There's two times, of course, that the temple was destroyed. There was the time when uh, uh, Solomon's temple was destroyed. And, you know, you, you should uh, just ponder for a minute what the people of Judah, of Jerusalem, were thinking about that. You know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and all the Babylonians had the place surrounded and it was, they were laying siege to it. And the people were thinking, well, this is God's temple. God's not going to allow this. Surely God is not going to allow this. 
And then it happened. I mean, boy, you talk about devastating. I'm sure they were devastated. Plus, they were all hauled off, right? They were all hauled off to Babylon. Well, this is where synagogues got their start, okay? To the degree that they were allowed to continue to practice Judaism, they met together. I think they kept Shabbat, generally. And um, they studied the Torah. They, um, this is one of the times where they, I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is where they probably quit speaking Hebrew and started speaking Aramaic. Um, this was a lot of the times you'll read about Babylonian, the Babylonian translation. During that 70 years, a lot of stuff was kind of invented by the Jews, and they were the Jews, because that was Judah, to kind of hold Judaism together. And that's where this whole Judah, you know, Jewishness started was then. And it was the Jews primarily that came back and reconstituted Israel back in when it was under King Cyrus, you know, when he gave the edict to come back and you can go back. And so, and they did their thing for two or three hundred years. You know, the Greeks conquered the Persians and various different things went on. Um, and then it happened again, of course, under the Romans. And they, they, did, they went back to the same model. They went and they, Jews would uh, congregate in little cities and they would have synagogues. That's where the term came from. And they would practice Judaism. But they felt, among other things, that God had said in Deuteronomy, boy, he says it 15 dozen times, you don't sacrifice anywhere except in the city that has my name, which everybody understands is Jerusalem. So they didn't do any more sacrifices and stuff like that when they didn't have Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem. But they did try to keep Judaism alive, and they did that through the synagogues and through rabbinic. That's where rabbinic Judaism started. Go ahead. Oh, I think in, if you look in Ezra and Nehemiah, there are records of family names of Jews and Levites. So uh, I think they kept pretty good family records. Yep. And uh, probably up until when they restored and they built the new king, or not kingdom, but the temple. Actually, they built the altar first so they could sacrifice, mm -hmm. and then the temple came a little later. Yeah. But I think they still had a line of... Uh, Levites. Le Levitical priests, priesthood up at that time. By the time they got to the Romans, though, the yeah. priesthood had been pretty much corrupted. Yeah. Because the high priest, the high priest during uh, Yeshua's time was a Roman appointee. And oh. typically somebody that had enough money got the job. So, and, and the, you can make a strong argument for the last legitimate priest was John the Baptist. And, of course, John the Baptist wasn't even recognized as such. So that's, that's my understanding. Well, thank you. Um, two things. I thought I had read somewhere that the Sanhedrin was also the only people that could give judgments, mm -hmm. and that had to occur in the temple. That could be. Okay. I know the Sanhedrin has to have 70, has 70 members. Okay. So. I, I, because I think, again, those judgments, you know, they were able to, people would come and they would, based on the word, the, the Torah or whatever, they would be able to pronounce judgments for the Jewish people, mm -hmm. but that it, it only counted if it occurred in the temple. With the temple gone. Mm -hmm. That could be. Okay. That could be. Well, the point is, is by virtue of the fact that there was no temple and that they were uh, captives or exiles, uh, the practice of their religion was going to necessarily be very limited. 
right? Because the Babylonians weren't going to let them do just anything they wanted. And right. Romans certainly weren't going to let them do just anything they wanted. That's been shown in history. So, but they, they were able to, uh, the, that's, that's what we owe, that's the added, or the debt of gratitude we owe to the Jews, is they kept that alive, such as it is. I mean, they might have manipulated it in ways that we could find fault with, but they kept it alive yeah. that whole time. Whereas the northern kingdom, after the Assyrians, they were no more. So with the Ark of the Covenant, um, I've, my understanding, God was, his presence was in the Ark of the Covenant? Yes. Okay. So when the temple was destroyed, I'm assuming maybe God left the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and does anyone know where the Ark of the Covenant ended up? <laughs> well, sure. I mean, you've watched Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. Sure okay. Yeah. There you go. I don't know, obviously. I know it. Yeah, I know. You're right. It, it was, uh, uh, that's, that's, that's the stuff of books. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think in the destruction of the temple, the uh, Herod's temple that was there when Yeshua um, was alive, after the, the destruction of that temple, um, there was quite a few of the, of the Levites that went to the Tiberias area mm -hmm. and there is around that area set up uh, the different synagogues. Could be. I don't know. Yeah. Well, there is a legend that Jeremiah took the sure. Ark of the Covenant and hid it somewhere, uh, I think like in Mount Nebo or something like that. Well, there's that. There's the, it should also have shown up at Scotland at one point in time. And then I know there's one in Ethiopia. So there's, I've heard all kinds of things about that. So I don't know. Who can know for sure? God knows. Well, mm -hmm. Also, the legend is that he went to Ireland and mm -hmm. Scotland, all these mm -hmm. places, and yeah. you know yeah. he, he took these the stone. Yeah, I the know. stone that he that is the, uh, the coronation stone that sits under the throne yeah. is There's, the actual stone. Now, oh, this is just a legend, right? Yeah. That uh, <laughs> Jacob laid his head down, and when he was at Bethel. The, the truth of the matter is, of course, that there, oftentimes there is elements of truth to these legends. But the point is, is at this point, it's hard to tell. And if we didn't have a, you know, we don't have a written document that says anything yeah. about it, so we're kind of out, out of luck. Let's go ahead, if that's all right. Anything else? Um, okay, chapter 9. Uh, let's see. We've got plenty of time. It'd be good to read the first 14 verses of chapter 9. Somebody want to read the first 14 verses of chapter 9? Oh, John will do it. And Jehovah <clears throat> spoke unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they were came out of the land of Egypt, saying, let the children of Israel also keep the Passover at his appointed season. In the fourteenth day of this month, at even, ye shall keep it in his appointed season, according to all the rites of it, and according to all the ceremonies thereof, shall you keep it. And Moses spake unto the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the first month, at even, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that Yahweh commanded Moses, so did the children of Israel. Verse 6. 
And there was a certain, and there were certain men who were defiled by the dead body of a man, that they could not keep the Passover in that on that day. And they came before Moses and before Aaron on that day. And those men said unto him, We are defiled by the dead body of a man. Wherefore are we kept back? Uh, that we may not offer an offering of Yehovah in his appointed season among the children of Israel. And Moses said unto them, Stand still, and I will hear what Yehovah ha will command a court concerning you. And Yehovah spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If any man of you or of your posterity shall be unclean by reasons of a dead body, or be in a journey afar off, yet he shall keep the Passover unto Yehovah. The fourteenth day of the second month at even, they shall keep it, and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it unto the morning, nor break any bone of it according to all the ordinances of the Passover. They shall keep it. But the man that is clean and is not in a journey and forbeareth to keep the Passover, even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people, because he brought not the offering of Jehovah unto his appointed season. That man shall bear his sin. And if a stranger shall sojourn among you, and will keep the Passover unto Yehovah according to the, according, the ordinances of the Passover, and according to the manner thereof, so shall he do. Ye shall have one ordinance, both for the stranger and for him that was born in the land. Okay, great. So we'll go back to the beginning and kind of take some of this apart. Um, so when and where was the first Passover celebrated by the Israelites. It was in the wilderness. It was uh, in the desert of Sinai. So uh, actually we can assume that it was at the foot of Mount Sinai. Okay, John? So why wouldn't it be Egypt? Well, I knew you You're... were going to get to that technicality. <laughs> this is the first celebration of the Passover. Remembrance. Okay, the memory remembrance. Memory, right. Yeah, the first Passover obviously occurred in Egypt. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not trying to be as smart, Alec, but it's... Sure it's yeah, I am. Wow, okay, that's, yeah. the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> I mean, sometimes there's a conflict. This is one of these things that we like... I think Margaret talked about. We like yeah. to argue sometimes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things. And you could argue, well, there was the laws for the first one in Egypt. Those things happened. And what's happening, and then what we're supposed to do afterwards are slightly different laws because we're remembering what happened. It's so, there's a... Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, quite, quite frankly, the, uh, the regulations are a little bit unknown to me, you know, to some degree. Because uh, the first Passover, you, you took a lamb, you know, and you kept it for several days and all this stuff. And I guess that's what you were supposed to do each year when you celebrated it. That's what this says, isn't it? I look at the uh, first Passover as the actual historic thing that's, that happened. That's where you get the term Passover. Yeah, and every every year till millennium after is the commemoration of that, that event. That's fine. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, Joe's got something. What's the significance of the the dates? The 
first month, a 14-day. Uh, then in uh, verse 3, it says in the 14-day of this month, is that still talking about uh, the verse 1, it says in the first month of the second year after they came out of the land of, uh, out of, the land of Egypt, uh, where are the significance of these days, and what do they mean? Well, that, that's fairly easy. Um, you remember when the, uh, you know, God told them to put the blood on the doorpost and that the angel of death was going to pass over all the houses that had that? That occurred on the 14th of the first month. And since this is the second year, it occurred one year before this. So this is the first remembrance of Passover. It's on the first anniversary of the original Passover. Right, John? Uh-oh. <laughs> so we had the Passover. That's in Exodus. What's the next book? It's Leviticus, right? Yes. We've gone through all of Leviticus. Yes. We've gone through chapter 9. I don't know how many chapters there are in Numbers. But we're, yep. And we're probably almost halfway through Numbers. Yep. Deuteronomy is just Moses retelling yep. a lot of the Torah, what happened in the past. Yep. Have we gone 40 years? Have we gone 20 years? We've gone one year yeah, that's and two right. months. One year. There's one year between about the middle of Exodus and right here. Right. Yeah. So. That's incredible. It is. Yeah. I didn't realize this until a couple, few years ago. Yeah. But. The, the, the time when, and we'll get close to it, I don't know, I think it's 12 or something, where we'll get the bill of divorce, or not the bill of divorce, it's effectively the bill of divorce. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, uh, the evil report and the yes. judgment that happens on them, it's that point on where you've got this dead zone of 38 years. Yes. Where... Yeah. Um, they're wandering around. They're, they're, yeah, it's, yeah. It's the, nothing happens because there's no, there's no authority. They're, they're, they're just walking dead. Yeah. Well, there's a few things that happen, but certainly not much. But, but the Bible, if it's nothing else, it's terse. You know, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. That's all that's there is just what you need to know to get the story that God wants to get across. across. But yeah, so the only conclusion you can draw from that first verse is that they've been at the foot of Mount Sinai for almost two entire books. Okay, so, and it's to be celebrated at the 14th, on the evening of the 14th into the 15th of the first month, which is Nisan. Um, now, the stuff in verse, starting in verse 6, mine says, but some of them could not celebrate the Passover on the account of a dead body. Um, so they had become, come to Moses and Aaron that same day and said to Moses, we have become unclean because of a dead body. But why should we be kept from presenting the Yahweh's offering with the other Israelites at the appointed time? So another, why might they have come in contact with a dead body? Someone died. Beg pardon? Someone died. Well, it certainly could be that with that many people, somebody died. But there was an interesting, I think you actually brought this up one time, Mark. What are they? What did they carry with them as they left Egypt? Do you remember? Among other things, they carried Joseph's bones. So whoever's been carrying Joseph's bones is unclean, right? And I can imagine him up there saying, "Hey, wait a minute! You told me to do this. 
I've been carrying his bones just like you told me to, and now I can't do Passover. What's up with this? Yeah. <laughs> and so what was the solution to someone who had become unclean and therefore couldn't celebrate Passover at the appropriate time? Beg your pardon? Wait a month. You can celebrate it one month later. Exactly one month later, you can celebrate it. It's on the 14th of the second month as opposed to the 14th of the first month. And you can celebrate it one month later. What was the other excuse for not being able to celebrate it other than coming with a dead body? Traveling. I'm off on a trip. I've got a business trip planned that week. Right? Okay. So, but what's the rule if you didn't come in contact with a dead body and you weren't away on a trip? You got cut off. Yeah, you better celebrate it. There's no excuse other than those two. If it's not one of those two things, then, then, then how does God view it? You don't care, right. is what he's based. You know, he says, if you are, what does it say? If a man, I'm in verse 13, but if a man who is ceremonially clean and not on a journey fails to celebrate the Passover, that person must be cut off from his people because he did not present the Lord's offering at the appointed time. That man will bear the consequences of his sin. It's an interesting contrast between the, the one who's not in Israel but does keep the, the, the ordinances, right? Mm-hmm. He's... You're not, there's no respect to a person. If he does it, then you have to honor what he's doing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, <clears throat> can I talk a little law here? Yeah, go for it. So, if you have a problem, you have to make a claim. That's how courts work. Okay. You got to have a claim. What's the claim that they made? I got all these dead bones. Well, I'm not, you know, you, like, it, let's assume that what, that what they were doing, with, what they were commanded to do with Joseph. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to, don't get mad, don't get angry, don't go to war, make yeah. a claim, yeah. go to court. Okay, yeah. And so, there's another term here, stare decisis. Oh, a decision has been made, case law has been made. We have another case, I thought it was in Deuteronomy, with the, the daughters of... Uh, yeah, Zelephahad, Zelephahad. Yeah, the daughters of uh, Ephraim or Manasseh, I think it was. Anyway, they said, we don't have any firstborn, how do we deal with that? Yep. You know, go make a claim. Yeah. God and, might. And they make the claim, and who presents the claim? Well, Moses, they make. Huh? Moses, Moses goes to God, and right, God but, tells but him. But they have to go to Moses first, yes, and then yep. there's, he's his representative, yep. Yep. <laughs> defense counsel, and he goes to God and he says, let's resolve. Oh, okay, that's reasonable. I'm yeah. a reasonable God. He yeah, says yeah. in Isaiah in the first chapter. So, yeah. <laughs> so here's the solution. Stare decisis is a real thing, it's biblical. It's 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 point. found in scripture. So okay. go give it to Thank Mark. You, Mark's been very patient over there. So I don't have a reasonable excuse for not keeping the Passover. I can't make a claim to be able to do it on the second month. Can't I just bring an offering and, 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 and be accepted? Well, not according to this, right? So this is one of those sins that there's no offering for? You're just what? cut off? I don't know. What do you think? Obviously, that's a rhetorical question. I'm afraid to answer it. It is. It's, there, there is no offering. You can't bring an offering to make restitution. You're okay. cut off. Okay. Well, well, like I say, from God's perspective... It's somewhat insulting, right, if for you not to do this. 
If everything's fine and you have no good excuse and you just don't want to do it, I mean, you know, if I were God, I'd be a little bit irritated. Yeah. Yeah. Especially all that work passing over and everything. Go ahead. I don't get this. This is the first uh, instructions for the first Passover remembrance. Yes. And they're all wandering around the desert, right? right. Well, right now they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, but Mount go Sinai. ahead. Where does somebody have a place to journey off to? <laughs> who, who would that be? <laughs> That's a very good point. You'll notice that that wasn't the example. The example was the dead bones, right? The dead body. Right. But God included in his answer if someone's away on a journey. So it doesn't say that somebody was. But, uh, right. But I but, think what but, this is for is in is the, future, the future. In the okay. future. All right, that makes sense. Yeah. That's a good question, though. Joe, turn around. There you go. Yeah, I just was reading uh, these uh, men uh, said, well, uh, you know, the dead bodies or everything else, they knew what the law was. Oh, yeah. And so the most important thing was the, the main thing was yeah, you know the law, but it's more important to keep the Passover as I have commanded you. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's good. You guys have been unusually quiet. So for the point that he was making, I kind of want to jump back to that because what I thought of when he was like, well, couldn't we just have a, a sacrifice that atones for it? And the one sacrifice that we have is Yeshua. Yeah. He is the sacrifice and he is the Passover lamb. And I, I think it'd be really ironic if, and that's what most of Christianity does now, is, well, we don't have to keep Passover. I mean, we have, you know, an atonement. And it's like, well, that is the, the Passover. We're, we're celebrating the atonement. Yeah, yeah. It's just really ironic not to celebrate it yeah. and then say that, well, it's the atonement. And it's like, that's the point. Yeah, you well, know? Yeah, what? Give credit where credit is due. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of Christians celebrate Passover because it's a cool thing to do, you know, with your yeah, Jewish yeah. friends. Oh, yeah, yeah. But sometimes, I'm an example, sometimes celebrating Passover as a Christian started me down some road of thinking that I wouldn't yep. have otherwise gone down. <laughs> when I celebrated Easter, I thought that I would celebrate Well, yeah, but you didn't think you were celebrating Passover. No. Yeah. Well, that's what it is. <laughs> right we'll talk more about that yeah so I want to zoom out a little bit from the detail that we're looking at into the bigger picture and the practical application of everything we've been looking at tonight it's been a lot of detail including Pesach and I'll come back to that but I think the bigger picture and the practical application is God is showing us he is a God of order he is a God of detail and he has a way of his kingdom operating and all of this is a instructional lesson to us to understand who he is to understand his love for us and how his kingdom operates mm -hmm. so going back to Pesach again and back to the uh, topic we talked about in the beginning tonight is that this was a teaching instruction for the children this is how weighty it was to him that the children were taught and understood what happened that if you don't do this and you don't keep this and teach your children you are cut off 
because it's not important enough for you unless you have a really good excuse that you're gonna be here at the table instructing your children tonight, then just step away because I want a people who are serious about who I am and how I operate. Yeah. I think that's a very good point for a couple of reasons. First of all, someone pointed this out to me one time and I've often thought about it. You could make a very strong argument that Passover is the only continuously celebrated feast day that's 3,500 years old. I mean, it has probably been celebrated every year somewhere for each of those 3,500 years, which is a pretty neat thing. Um, but the other thing is, is God being God and his plan being what it is, it's very dependent upon our relationship with him being maintained all those 3,500 years. And there's no way it's going to be maintained if you don't pass it down from generation to generation. And you can't pass it down from generation to generation unless you do it every single year. I mean, you can talk to, well, heck, how many of us have had difficulty giving up Christmas? Okay, why? Because we did it all the time, right? I can remember as a little boy doing it, right? Christmas, and I didn't, I mean, it was just something you did, what you grew up with. And it took me quite a while, I shouldn't say quite a while, certainly several years though, to where I don't miss Christmas anymore because I realize where it came from and what's going on there. But I guess the point is, is those traditions are important. They're a very significant part of why God's plan is actually working, if you ask me. So that's why I think he's serious about it. Can I have? Okay. Uh, in nine, nine, I want to read the first two verses over in chapter 9. And Yahweh spoke unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they came out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the children of Israel also keep Passover at his appointed season. <laughs> Who is his? Is it Jews? No. Right. It's Jehovah. It's, it's God. It's the God. It's, it's God. It's yeah. his season. Yep. That's a real good point. One last thing I wanted to get before we quit. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yay. <laughs> I feel really bad asking this question. Oh, I wouldn't. Um, so what does this mean for us today? Mm -hmm. Because I don't, foresee, I don't see myself not observing Passover because I don't want to, mm -hmm. but... What if you, say, had a military obligation mm -hmm. or some other, I mean, would, would you, what does this mean for us well, today? I tell you what, I think, you know, God looks at the heart. Now, military obligation, if you ask me, falls pretty clearly into this, you're away on a journey kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's neither here nor there. But it's more to the point of whether you want to and whether you put the effort in to do it. If you think, ah, it's too much trouble, I can't be bothered, then you yourself ought to be convicted by that, you know? And it's difficult sometimes around here in our culture mm -hmm. because we don't have a lot of people that celebrate Passover, right? Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, this is just me talking, but uh, sometimes the things we do these days where we celebrate it as a large group, I don't know that that's necessarily what's really thought about. I mean, the way the original Passover happened was 
in a family or if the family was too small, right? If, if a whole lamb was more than you and your family could eat, get your neighbors together. So one or two families, three families getting together and celebrating Passover. And all the function of Passover is, is to remember, to teach the coming up generation, you know, when they ask you. So why are we doing this? That's essentially those questions. Why are we doing this? We're doing this to remember what God did for us with the Egyptians way back when, right? You read the story. So I don't think God is real particular about what you do. I think he's more particular about the attitude that you have when you're doing it and the fact that you remember. That's the point. Remember. You need to remember this. And you need to make it a part of your traditions, your family traditions, so that it'll get carried on. Does that make sense? It does. Um, but enough. the consequences for not doing it were severe. Well, I mean, you were yeah. cut off. Yeah. So what if you're not in the military? You have a regular job. Well, that's, you... that, that could also be. I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, do you I guess, um, like I'm... I say, culture, life is much different now. You know, I'm not trying to make light of it, but I think I, let's see, this is just me being honest about it. A lot of times this cut off thing is very scary. Yeah. And I'm not sure exactly what it means for us today, but again, I'm counting on the fact that God looks at the heart. Yeah. And, and if your heart attitude is, is right before him, I think the, uh, the kind of celebration you're able to participate in or you're able to pull off will be understood. Does that make sense? It does. I think I'm, I think I'm just, um, I'm at a point in my walk with the Lord where I'm starting some, where I have certain questions. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, I mean, I don't want to take up a whole bunch of time yeah. or anything, but um, this is my first year. So I haven't done these last three um, mm -hmm. uh, appointed times yet. This will yeah. be my first time doing it. And I have some anxiety about it sure. because what if I can't get the time off? What if I can't? He'll understand. You know, I mean, these are, yeah. he calls us and he says, you should love me more than your mother and your father and yeah. your son and your daughter. And, and he even says in one case, more than your wife. I yeah. don't have a wife, but I have a husband. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, well, I, I, guess, I tell you what, you know, in, I, if I were in, no, that's okay. If I were in your shoes, I'd, I'd just pray. I'd say, you know, God, you know my heart. You know I want to do this. Show me how. And if it's, if it's not possible or if you have to wait to the next month, what, you know, I mean, God respects it. I think he respects your desire and your attitude as much as he respects your ability to pull it off. Honestly, that, that makes sense. God's, well, I agree. I think that he... Um, I, I guess the thing he, I want to yeah. encourage you, don't get weighted down with a bunch of pressure and guilt yeah. about it. I don't think he's going to cut you off. <laughs> I, I, no, I, <laughs> but do you hear what I'm saying? I, I do like, hear what like you're saying. That I should love him more than... You want to take than, this as seriously yes. as he says to. Yeah, I understand And so that. does that mean that I leave my job if my job doesn't allow me to meet him at his appointed time? Yeah. You well, know, I tell you what, I've heard a lot of stories of people who have come with that very issue and, and prayed about it, and miraculously, the time off has been available, been made available, miraculously. God recognizes that you want to. He'll reward you. Thank you. 
uh, Margaret has something. And then we better quit. Oh. I'm just going to say that um, a lot of times employers, you got to give them credit. Because if you let them know where you're at and what you're doing, they'll work with you. Um, especially if you have an employer that has more than 50 employees, there's, there's rules that they have to accommodate your religious observance, observances. So um, I think it's communicating to your employer, too. If, if you have to do it, not only that, there's a planning ahead. You might not be able to do it this year, but plan ahead for next year. And if you have like a vacation day, put in for a vacation day for that day. Um, the thing is that, um, you know, the feast, uh, like even Sukkot, if you want to keep Sukkot, you've got to plan ahead. You've got to start saving for it. You, you, have to, you have to look ahead at that appointment just like you would Christmas. You know, you got your Christmas bank account to get the presents and get the food and all that stuff. All that pagan stuff. Yeah. Um, and and it, it takes time. And there's times when you're not going to be doing it exactly right. I remember one time, I may not have been on a journey, but my brain was. <laughs> and I had to keep, I kept the second Passover, whether it was right or not. It was, a, it was like, you know, my brain was somewhere else. Yeah. So... I don't know where I'm justifying it, but you do well, what you do. Yep. Like I say, God sees the heart, and I'm both, I'm both glad and, and scared of that. <laughs> Just another possible answer for you, and I agree that almost everybody I know that prayed and asked God for the times off, whether it be for Shabbat or the feast, they've been, they've been granted. And it's hard for an employer not to grant it when we have other religions that are rising up in this country that are getting everything they want when they say this is a deeply religious commitment that I have. Second thing is, is when the apostles were imprisoned, were they able to keep the feasts? No. When they were in Babylon in captivity, were they able to do it exactly as it's prescribed? No. And so a lot of these things, like Jerry was saying, God knows. He knows your heart. And, and, and if we beseech him, he's the king. He knows we're where we're at in our predicament, and we trust him for the answer and the resolve. The other thing I wanted to touch on, because we didn't get a chance to touch on it at all, was we espouse in this fellowship that we believe in a two-house and a one-law, and the last verse of this um, that we read today uh, says, you shall have one statute both for the alien and for the native of the land. So it doesn't matter whether you are an Israelite or someone that was the Egyptian or the Midianite that came out with them. It's just one law for everybody. You, there's, no, there's no Noahide law here for the alien and, and the sojourner. They had the same laws as the natives. There is no distinction in God's eyes, and everybody that tries to push that down people's throat are completely off basis. I really was going to get there, but it's late. Why don't you let me pray? Father God, thank you for the evening. Thank you for the very beneficial discussion we've had. We've all gotten to be a little bit... Uh, We've been challenged, and we appreciate the fact that your word does challenge us. And we ask that you be patient with us, that you guide us, and you help us to uh, just understand uh, how you'd like us to behave. And we just thank you so much for loving us, and we thank you for making yourself known to us. And ask that you keep us and protect us until we meet together again. In Yeshua's name, amen. Thanks very much. Next week, John will be here, and I'll be back the week after that.